the New Testament church barely got off the ground, uh, then the devil uh, sent uh, false teachers to infiltrate said churches. Uh, his goal was to minimize their impact in said culture. Uh, one uh, particular uh, church, I would call it Exhibit A, is the church in Galatia. Uh, the Christian Jews, and I, I, Christians with scare quotes, uh, Christian Jews uh, infiltrated the church and they taught, um, well, if you want to be saved, you have to believe in Jesus as your Savior and you have to do the works of the Mosaic Law. Uh, and they were, began to teach that. And they were very respectable people, uh, prominent people. People in the church began to listen to this. Paul caught wind of this. And as any good shepherd, uh, he took false teaching to task. Uh, after the niceties of the first five verses of Galatians chapter 1, uh, Paul, as a shepherd, uh, dove in with his staff. Uh, and here's what he said. He says, uh, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel which is really not another, uh, only there are some who are disturbing you, those are the false teachers, and who distort the gospel of Christ. He says, but even though we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we preach to you, let him be tolerated. You read it. Let him be accursed. It's a, in Greek, it's anathema. It's a very strong statement. Paul then says, in case you didn't listen to what he just said, he says, as I have said before, which is just a second ago, uh, so I say again now, if it's a conditional clause, because you don't know if a Christian's going to buy into false teaching or not, it says, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you have received, let him be accursed. He's now said it twice. Why do you say it twice? Because he knows we have hard heads, right? Like stubborn is like maybe your spiritual gift. And so he knows how we're made. And he just, he, he wants you to understand that if somebody is inside of a church infiltrating it with false doctrine, uh, they're playing with fire, as it were. They should be accursed before God. Because the gospel is really simple. You're saved by the grace of Christ, not of works, lest no man boast, according to Paul in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. But he said, you have these infiltrators who've come in and they've, they've started telling you, well, if you're a Jewish person who's come to Jesus in faith, you still need to remember to observe all the ritual of the law. And so Paul spends, remember what book are we studying, by the way? I told you before I got going. What? Because you're thinking, this, I don't even know where this guy's going. What did I tell you? We're studying 1 John. Remember I told you I'm going to build my case. And we're, so we're getting there, correct? We're heading there. So just stay with me. He just spends his time here developing the book of uh, Galatians, how to identify a false gospel. So uh, he's going to give four components. Uh, number one, a false gospel views Christ's death as insignificant. Two. Uh, he's going to teach, that's in Galatians chapter 2, verse 21, by the way. Uh, he's going to point out in this book, chapter 3, verse 12, that a false gospel uh, talks about perpetual obedience to legalistic laws to get saved. And trust me, when you get on that treadmill, you are never, ever happy. Because one thing constantly haunts you, have I done enough to please God? The answer will be no. So it destroys your joy in Christ. Um, he gives us these, these concepts. Uh, number three, uh, he says false teaching places a premium value on garnering the favor of God through continual observance of rituals that they tell you you must observe. And then the number four, false teaching uh, seeks to shackle the, the, the person in question to endless laws, rules, and regulations. They're legalist, and they're very convincing. And you're only holy if you do what we say you do. Oh, you believe in Jesus? Fantastic. But you must do all these other things too. Paul says in verse uh, four, or chapter uh, five, verse four, uh, later in the book, this is an NIV, New International Translation, is a little bit closer to the Greek text. This is, I usually use the NAS, New American Standard, but this is uh, closer to the Greek. Here's what he says to those Christians. He says, you who are trying to be justified by the law, 
which is what the false teachers are telling you, have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. Uh, the word alienation, uh, uh, it's a Greek word. It's a preposition wedded to a verb. I've told you this many times. When you wed a preposition to a verb, like what happens, you just made it emphatic. So he said, if you walk away from the doctrine of grace and the, of the gospel, that Jesus saves you and nothing that you do saves you, uh, and you get back into legalistic activity, he says, uh, you have been alienated from God. Does that mean that you lost your salvation? No, as I'm going to show you. Uh, because the word alienation and its literal usage, whenever we want to know what a word lexically means in Greek, you have to first look for the literal usage of the word. That word is a nautical term, alienation. Why'd they pick that nautical term to come up with the concept of alienation? Because that word really meant you're in a boat that's adrift in a current. You're, you, you've lost your way as a sailor. Now, if you've drifted from the destination of where you're supposed to go, uh, can you correct your course? Answer, yes. And so he says to them, uh, you who are trying to be justified by the law have uh, drifted away from Christ. Uh, not that you lost your salvation, uh, but you, you've moved away from the grace that, that gives you such great joy in walking with Christ. I know that these people are believers because in verse, remember what book are we studying? First John. John, we're getting there, right? Slowly and surely. Uh, verse 10, notice what Paul says in Galatians 5. He says to these Christians who've bought into some of this false concept of a gospel, he says, I have confidence in you, uh, in the Lord, that you will adopt no other view, but the one who is disturbing you, this false teacher, will bear his judgment, whoever he is. He has to give account to God for how he perverted the gospel. So he's like a, a really good coach who's coming alongside you to tell, telling you, I know you have blown it. I know you've, you've bought into some things. You've listened to the wrong people, but I have full confidence that you're going to get your little boat back on track. And he had great, great hope for them. This was in 49 AD. This is when this occurred, uh, that these people infiltrated the church. So if you figure Christ was crucified around 33 AD, didn't take long for the devil to get busy, right? You think he stopped today? I think not. Because when you get to the book of John, 1 John, which is the book that we're studying, John is writing 50 years later, around 90 AD. He's in his 90s. And he's writing to the churches in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, uh, like churches like Ephesus, Laodicea, Thyatira, Sardis, etc. He's writing to all those churches in Asia Minor, all connected by uh, a road system uh, that they could all get to. Uh, and, and John is, is writing to them because they've been infiltrated by false teachers. Now, I've told you, and I'll tell you again, because uh, you might have forgotten, no false teacher is ever going to walk into the church with a huge sign. And what's it not going to say? Hey, I'm a false teacher. My name's Larry. Everybody's going to go, whoa. Pastor Marty told us about you. Is a false teacher going to come in like that? No, no. They're going to come in for, oh, man, I'm transferring from another church. I just got moved. Military orders brought me here, et cetera. I mean, they're going to sound really great. They might even have gone to some really great schools. Uh, but they're going to come in like that, unsuspecting, say all the right things. They might even use the same terminology, but they take the terminology that we use and impregnate it with other concepts that are false. So John's dealing with those people, and we call them Gnostics. Uh, the Greek word gnosis means to know. Uh, and so they, like good false teachers, felt like they were in the know. So their whole Grecian version of Christianity was very legalistic, like that of the Judaizers that Paul wrote about in Galatians. But their thing was, body's evil, spirit's good. Hence, whatever you do with said body, doesn't matter. Enjoy life to the fullest. Do whatever you want with your body. What matters is the internal man. Uh, this led to what we would call as antinomianism, lawlessness. 
And so John writes these churches to tell them, I as your shepherd need to take you to task because these people have infiltrated your churches with this false teaching. Uh, and he, he tells us, like Jude's going to tell us, that they've come in unnoticed. Notice what Jude um, says, and Jude only has one chapter. So Jude, chapter 1, verse 4, Jude's dealing with false teachers as well before he write, uh, toward the end of the New Testament. He says, for certain persons have crept into your churches. How? Remember, unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, they are ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness, and they deny our only ma our master and Lord Jesus Christ. So they deny the deity of Christ, but they, but they also take the grace of God and they turn it into licentiousness, or I think the King James reads debauchery. So what happens? They teach you that the grace of God covers all sin. Hence, if that's true, I can lead a sexually perverse life, and Jesus' grace will cover all of that. False teaching because if Jesus is your savior, the last thing you're going to want to do is challenge him, correct? But that's what they were teaching. And Jude says, they've come into your church. Are you paying attention? The devil has not stopped any of this kind of stuff. He infiltrates the church, false views of sexuality, because that's what happened in Jude. That's what happens in the, the book of 1 John. They infiltrate the churches, get people to modify what uh, the gospel law is about. They begin to turn people against each other. Oh, oh you, you are of our progressive theological mindset? Then you are truly saved and holy. Oh, you're not of our progressive theological mindset? Well, then you're probably not really saved. That's what happened in those churches. And so it leads to, uh, we're studying 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. What's it about? Well, this entire little pericope, little passage, is about how saints should deal with destructive doctrinal deceptions. Because if you don't think that they're attempting to infiltrate churches today, you need to wake up. Churches all over the place are digging into false teaching. And so John tells churches, and he tells us in our day and time, you need to wake up and, and oppose that which is false. So how do, how do we do that? What are we supposed to do? So we're only going to look at one thing uh, in verse 18, that you, you push back against destructive doctrinal deceptions by considering the times in which you live. I know, because I've been there before, you watch the news, you read articles, I do it every day, I, I watch, I, I'm, I'm tuned into my culture, and I cannot say I walk away going, man, that, was, that feels good, that was awesome news. No, I usually walk away going, that's depressing. I mean, what new evil thing can they think up? What, what holy thing can they deconstruct? I mean, it just blows me away. Um, I'm here today to tell you that uh, how you get back on track in your mind is you consider the times in which you live that they're prophesied not to be awesome. They're prophesied to be lawless because what does John say? Verse, remember studying verse 18. Still with me? Okay, verse 18. He says, children, it's the what? Last hour. And just as you heard that the Antichrist is coming, uh, even now many Antichrists have appeared. Uh, and for this we know that it is the last hour. That is all we want to talk about today. Because if you understand the time in which we live, you're better prepared to live for Christ in the time in which we live. So think of it this way. Uh, when I went out for, I was a baseball player, but my freshman year in high school, I decided, hey, why not go out for football? Bad idea. Yeah, because, you know, what after I went through, and I grew up in the desert of Southern California, where it could get 115, 120, 125 degrees. I was born and raised there. I thought I was used to the heat until I put on full gear pads. I mean, you got to be a helmet, couldn't breathe. You know, halfway through a two-hour practice, they had to give you salt tablets and a, and a little cup of ice. I'm like, I need a water faucet. I mean, I'm dying here. No mercy from the coaches. Uh, but 
I was told that this, this final week in August in the Imperial Valley where I grew up was what, and I have to use a different terminology because we're in church, let's just call it Gehenna week. Do <laughs> you follow me? Comprende? Yeah. You know, it's on the Mexican border. You know, it's going to be hot, muy caliente. I was used to it, but I put all that gear on, and I, I knew for my friends it's going to be bad. Help me prepare for it psychologically so that when Coach Moroni, when he was about 250-pound, huge Italian dude, he gets on the sled. You know what a sled is? It's got like six pads on it. And you're crouched down and getting ready, and he blows the whistle, and his command was very simple. Whenever you hear the whistle, hit the pad, then roll and pop up and hit the next pad until you roll off the last pad and then get back in line to do it again. We pushed him all over the football field. He got a free ride. But, but things slow down after a while. You can't breathe. You can't get any air. You're dying from thirst. You got cotton mouth. There were times... When he's blowing that whistle and you're rolling and hitting the pads, I would go in between the pads and hit, hit the coach. <laughs> Baker, you know, back in line. You know, what? You know, so, but I was told it was going to be bad. <clears throat> what am I telling you? Uh, well, it's going to be bad. I'm not here to, like, like, I came to church to be encouraged. I'm encouraging you. <clears throat> I'm telling you, prepare yourself. Because if it was the last hour in John's day, it's the last second in our day. I mean, can you tell time? Uh, the word for uh, last hour, last, eschaton is the word. It means last in a series, nothing following it. Eschaton. And that word might sound familiar because that's the word from which we get the word eschatology. What does that mean? Study of the end times. I've told you before, I'll tell you again. There's a, there's a retirement home in, in Sacramento, and they, it's new, and they, and they called it the eschaton. I'm like, do they know Greek? Obviously not. I'm checking in. I ain't checking out. Anyway, back to my sermon. So, so, so eschaton means the end of a series. It's the end. So it means the end of God's program for you, humanity. He says, consider children. It's the last hour. It's the eschaton. Wow. What's that mean? That any moment Jesus could appear. And we're going to get into this next week. When Jesus appears... Will you as his child be ashamed when he appears because of what you're doing as a Christian? Or will you be going, oh yeah, I've been waiting. Or are you going to be going, uh-oh, Lord, Lord, hey, could it, don't beat me up right yet. I need a couple more days to kind of get things together. A little more confession, a little more Bible, which we're going to talk about that next week. And please come back. Don't, I know what he's talking about, okay? So it's the last hour. So I would say that if it was the last hour 2,000 years ago, we're on borrowed time. Are you following me? Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, New American Standard says this. In the, this is 2,000 years ago. He wrote this. In these last days, God, he, has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Jesus is the heir of all things. So who inherits the future earth, the future cosmos, the future kingdom, etc.? Republicans? Democrats? Independents? Progressives? Who inherits the final kingdom? Jesus, why are you depressed? But before we get to that final time, we have to go through rough times. Uh, Philippians chapter 4, verse 5, Paul says, how should you live in the last days? Well, let your what? Why are you saying it so softly? <laughs> well, well, I don't do it. <laughs> no, let your gentleness be evident to only your family, only your wife. No, let your gentleness be evident to all. 
at work, at the Pentagon, when you're slugging, wherever you are, let your gentleness be evident to all. Why? He gives you the motivational evidence. What is it? Lord's near. Because if you really believe that the, that the door, God's dimensionality was going to open at any moment, he was going to appear, I mean, any moment, you'd be changing. Now, there's more. Uh, James chapter 5 says, uh, be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. I mean, are, aren't you impatient? I, I'm, I'll just confess, this confessional booth. Just don't tell anybody I confess right here. I, mean, I get impatient. I read the news, I watch the news, I follow what's going, I connect all the dots, I see where it's going, it doesn't look good, bad trajectory. And I, I was like, Lord, what in the world is taking you? I say it respectfully. <laughs> what did he say? He says, well, consider how a guy farms. He says, behold, the farmer waits for precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until he gets the early and the late rain. So the farmer throws seed out, and what's he doing? He's waiting around for the crop to generate, right? He says, you too, likewise, be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is... At hand, he didn't say manana. He says, it's, at, it's, it's, it's right here. He says, do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you do not, uh, yourselves, so you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. I mean, how much more evidence does God have to give you that I'm almost to appear, you need to make sure you're walking closely with me. So when we dive into what I'm going to talk about, because we're studying 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, and he's saying, consider the last hour. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because if I truly believe the Lord can imminently appear at any moment, it radically changes how I should live. Second um, Peter 3, notice what Peter says. He gives you the practical cookies on the lower shelf. What should you do in light of God's soon appearance? He says, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, like the cosmos, uh, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? No kidding. He says, looking for the hastening of the coming of the day of God, on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by a burning and the elements will melt with an intense heat. So either God, who created everything by the word of his mouth, just creates it with the word of his mouth, or he allows multiple supernovas or whatever, the place is getting dissolved. Then he says in verse 13, but according to his promise, we, Christians, what are we looking for? New heavens and a new earth. What's there? Uh, righteousness which is not what's here now. Righteousness dwell, dwells there. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, how should you live in the current culture? Uh, be diligent to be found by him in what? I'm a peaceful person, and I live a spotless and a blameless life. I'm not a hypocrite. So what I say is how I live. So as we dig into what we're going to talk about, because we haven't got to verse 18 yet, but we're getting there. I told you it's going to take me a few minutes. We live in light of the soon appearance of the arrival of Jesus Christ for his church. You ready? Are you ready? And boy, does he need to come and come soon. But prior to that, we are foretold by John that uh, we, we must gear up for what we have to deal with. So notice what he says in verse 18. He says, uh, children, it's the last hour, just as you heard that the Antichrist is coming. Uh, and even now many Antichrist, plural, have arisen, and this is how we know it's the last hour. How do I know it's the last hour? Because I look around me, and what do I see in my culture? I see Antichrist in a little A, not the big Antichrist. I see little ones, because I know what he's like. I know what they're like, because they're the precursor to him. They're like the shock troops in said culture before he arrives. Well, what's he like? Uh, well, what's the Antichrist like? Well, he's prophesied all over the Old Testament that he's coming. Anti in the Greek, anti means to against. Christos means to be against Christ. So anything that Christ is for, he's the opposite of that. 
And Jesus talks about him in uh, Matthew 24 and says he's, a, he's like a false messiah. He can sound good, but it's evil. So in Daniel chapter 7, uh, when Daniel goes through the great vision of the king, notice what he says about the final four uh, em empires of the earth. And I don't have time to develop all this in detail uh, historically, uh, but, he's, but he's talking about the final world empires from the Babylonian Empire uh, to the Medo-Persian Empire, to the Grecian Empire, to the Roman Empire, to the final form of the Roman Empire, which hasn't not yet hit the planet. He says this, the fourth beast will be a, a fourth kingdom on the earth. So he says the final world political systems will be like a wild animal. He says it's going to be different from all the other kingdoms. It will devour the whole earth and it will tread it down and it will crush it. He goes on to say, as for the ten horns which make up the toes of the ancient image, uh, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise. Uh, this, is the, this follows the Roman Empire. But the Rome, if you study Roman history, never had a ten-nation confederacy. That's how we know Rome's coming back with an antichrist leading it to be the world ruler. Uh, he's going to come back. He will arise after them, and he will be different from all the previous ones, and he will subdue three kings of his confederacy. He's going to wipe them out. He's going to shock the world. And now that we live in the day in which we live, we know how this could easily be done by a politician, couple nuclear strikes, wipe out three members of the NATO alliance or whatever, send an EMP, electromagnetic pulse, send them back to the dark ages. Now we know this could absolutely happen. It says, this individual, when he comes, he will speak out against the most high and wear down the saints of the highest one. So he's telling you, he's going to hate God and hate Christians, and he's going to go after Christians, which is what our culture is beginning to do, sadly to say. He says, and he will intend to make alterations in times in the law because he doesn't like historical things. He changes things in the calendar. He adds stuff to the calendar. We live in this day. He says, they will be given to his hand for a time, times, and a half a time. That's three and a half years. He says, uh, but the court will sit in judgment, God's court. And his dominion, the, the, the Antichrist dominion, is going to be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. Forever. Who wins? Jesus says, then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of who? The saints of the highest one. That's Jesus. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and his, all dominions will serve and obey him. Jesus is coming back. Are you ready to see him? And when he comes back, he deals with the devil's main man, the Antichrist. Uh, we're, we're foretold in Scripture that that, that Antichrist is coming. Um, some translations, like the NIV, uh, put the article before the word Antichrist in 1 John chapter 2, 18. Some, like the New American Standard, uh, leave it uh, without a, an article to emphasize the fact that he's, he's been foretold to come. What, what's he going to do when he gets here? So bear with me. We're going to go quickly through what the Antichrist is going to do to prepare yourself. Remember, it's Gehenna week. You following me? Are you with me? And so God's telling you, understand what he's going to be like so that as his people are arriving and doing their thing, you're not shocked. And that you know how to stand strong and true with truth. So here's some of the things that he's going to do. Um, I'll just tell you, I have 28 things. The last service thought there was about 700. Um, so stay with me on this. What's he going to do? He's going to appear on the scene in the latter times of Israel's history. Two, he will not appear until the day of the Lord, until it's begun, because it's a seven-year period. Um, three, his manifestation is presently hindered by the restrainer in 2 Thessalonians 2. That's a whole other sermon, but the restrainer is the Holy Spirit. And where is the Holy Spirit today? He's in the church. Why do I believe in the rapture? Many reasons. One is, when the restrainer removes his church, then all evil breaks loose. But since the restrainer is omnipresent, he'll still be here, but he's not going to be there with the church. 
Four, he will be revealed when the restrainer is removed. Five, he's a Gentile. Why? Because he comes from the sea, which according to Revelation 13, 1, represents the nations, the goyim, the, the Gentiles. Six, he comes from the revived Roman Empire because he is from those who destroyed Jerusalem, which would be Vespasian, Titus, etc., Romans, etc. Uh, he's the head of the last form of Gentile world power. Why? He's going to take all the components of all world empires, uh, all that of the Babylonian, the Medo-Persian Empire, um, uh, the Grecian Empire, Alexander the Great, all of his generals. He's going to take all of those leaders, as evil as they were, and he's going to be them all rolled up into one. Eight, he's going to rule over the nations in a powerful way. What are totalitarian uh, leaders trying to do today? Rule over the people with an iron fist. Nine, he eliminates three of the ten world leaders in his rise to power. That's how he rises to power. Total brutality. Ten, his rise comes through a peace program because he sounds like a man of peace. He, he is noted for his intelligence, persuasiveness. There will be no statesman like him. He will be able to communicate at a level people, will, it will blow them away how smart he is. Twelve, he rules with absolute authority. Translated, you either obey him and what he wants to see happen or he eliminates you. Thirteen, his chief interest is might and power. He lives for political power and military power. That's all he's about. 14, he makes a peace treaty with Israel at, as the head of his new world government. Because he tells the, the Israelis, I can make peace between you and the, and the, well, Hamas, Hezbollah, pick them. Could you imagine if a statesman came along and had the solution? Everyone would listen to him. But he's not a man of peace. 15, he introduces idolatrous worship, namely, worship me. 16, not me, but him. 16, he's a blasphemer who assumes deity status. He thinks he's God. Uh, 17, he's energized by Satan. 18, he's the head of Satan's lawless systems. 19, he's seen as God because of the blindness of the people. And you could see how easily our people would be duped by somebody this today. Just pick a subject that they're duped on already that you cannot believe they believe that stuff. 20, he becomes the great adversary of Israel more than any other person. Like Herod, Antiochus Epiphanes, you pick one. 20 and 21, he's, an alliance will come against him, which is going to be the Russians. They're going to attack him from the north through Syria, through the Golan Heights. And that's a whole other sermon series. You can see this is already being set up in our day and age. And he's going to come in to help his friends Israel. But he's going to take over Israel when he does that. Uh, 22, how many do I have? 700? Uh, in the ensuing conflict, he will gain control over Palestine and the adjacent authority. 23, he will rise to power with the help of a corrupt religious system that he seeks to dominate, that seeks to dominate him. Uh, he's gonna, he comes to status power and religious power wedded underneath him. Uh, he's going to destroy that false religious system so he can rule unhindered as God in the flesh. 25, he becomes the adversary of the Prince of Princes, Jesus Christ. I think we have more. He's in power for seven years, according to Daniel, all passages listed. Uh, 27, the direct judgment of God terminates his role uh, when God engages him in the final battle of all battles in Megiddo, uh, plains of Jezreel. 28, he will be thrown into the lake of fire. Amen to that. And God's done. And then Jesus is king of kings. And who wins? The saints. And righteousness and peace dwell here. That's what, there's some of the things that he's going to do. And I told you there was a lot of things, so don't bother taking notes, right? I told you. These will be online tomorrow. But, but what's he prophesied to do when he gets here? Because John says he's coming, but he's not here yet. But little antichrists are, are here already. But, but what's he going to be like? I'll give you eight things of what he's like, his character. 
Because if you know his character, when you see the character of his followers, you know what you're dealing with, okay? Number one, he's a liar to the core. That is all he's about, and he terminates godly people because they challenge him. Two, he's insolent toward God and, and, and doesn't fear God at all. I mean, you already see this today. When, when we stop to pray for tragedies that happen in our nation, and what happens? What do people say? You know, you got to get past praying. you got to get on to taking action. Are you kidding me? I'm talking to the living God, asking for his mercy, his grace, his wisdom. What greater thing could you do? But that's our culture. This is latent persecution. Yeah, he's insolent toward God, blasphemous, speaks monstrous things. I have illustrations for all of these things that I collect off the internet. I can't even read the things to you that are being said inside churches and outside of churches that they're so off the grid, I won't share them on a Sunday morning. It's already happening. Verse three, uh, it says, or uh, item three, he's gonna do according to his will, meaning he's gonna do whatever he wants to do and everybody will fear him and do exactly what he says. Four, he will be overbearing in his attitude and feel he has all of the answers and he'll exalt himself. He's in love with himself. He's the ultimate narcissist. Five, he will think to change the times and the laws. Why? He doesn't like old traditions. He's going to change laws. I mean, is that not happening in our culture? Uh, lawless people. So uh, he will use existing laws to deconstruct law. Uh, he will create new laws with new rights. Uh, he will fail to enforce laws because they bother what he wants to achieve. And then he'll use law as a bludgeon against those that he doesn't agree with. Sound familiar? That's the Antichrist spirit. He changes the times and, and, and the laws. Things on the calendar that bother him, he'll add things to the calendar. Six, this shepherd will be an idle shepherd, meaning in the Hebrew text, he's worthless before God is what he's like. But he thinks he's of great worth and the world thinks he's of great worth. Um, number seven, He's a, what we would call the shepherd of Zechariah 11, 15 to 17. Uh, he's a person who is absolutely deceitful. And he, he gets people to put their trust in him. He's, he's the false Messiah. And then last eight, this Antichrist has natural effect. The natural affection for women is unnatural for him. Because this is what, notice what Daniel says. He will show no regard for the gods of his father. So he hates any kind of religion because he is religion. He hates all other religions. Uh, and he has no care for the desire of women. What does that mean? He diminishes what a woman is. What is happening in our culture? That very thing, diminishing the woman, creating the image of God, given to Adam, that woman's place is being diminished. This is the spirit of who? Antichrist, etc. Those are the eight things that kind of describe his character. Why are we talking about them? So that when you see that kind of characteristic about the culture, you'll know the origin of it and know how to push back against that. So it's essential that you understand that, but it's also essential that you understand he has shock troops, as I've said, that are here to prepare the ground for his arrival. So John says there's many antichrists that are already here. So if they were already there back in his day and age, you know, like 90 AD, you better believe they're here. What are they like? I'll give you a, a brief breakdown of what the antichrist, plural, are like, because they're like the big one that's coming. Number one, they profess to speak truth when they really speak lies. So they'll tell you that they're speaking truth when really they're all about deception. Two, they act like they respect Christians when they really detest you. Three, they bring deviant doctrines into unsuspecting churches under the guise of words like love, tolerance, kindness, compassion, but they don't mean what those words connote. 
because they gave them different words, meaning. Three or four, they looked to smear and create dirt to silence godly leaders and godly people. They did the same thing to Jesus. Those are like ad hominem attacks. When they can't handle your arguments, they attack you. They did it to Jesus. Uh, they attempt to shame believers when they, uh, when they are the ones who are very, really full of shame. They did this to Jesus. Uh, when they couldn't handle Jesus, in Luke chapter 7, verse 33, they just said, well, he has a demon. Imagine, they can't handle who he is, so they just say, well, he's just demon-possessed. Uh, they get people to turn against godly leaders as they did in all the churches in the New Testament. Corinth, Colossae, go pick a church. Uh, get Christians infighting with each other, and they're not unified. Therefore, that diminishes the power of the gospel. They eventually uh, say things uh, that no sane person would ever say because uh, they have to give account of God, so they wouldn't say it, but they don't care. Uh, they are lawless and wrap themselves in the law to push their lawlessness. It's, it's unbelievable. That's how they function, and they oppose Christ, as we'll see next week. They, they, they reject Christ as the God-man Messiah. The thing is, John says, what should you do in an age where doctrinal deviation is the order of the day? Well, num number one, consider the times in which you live. What are the times in which we live? Those kinds of times, so that you are educated, so I know. So how many are in the military? Confess now, forever hold your peace. Yes, yeah. Um, did you go to boot camp? Only one person went to boot camp? I thought I'd hear a hua or something. Did you go to boot camp? Yeah. Was it enjoyable? No. Yeah. Whoever went to boot camp went, man, that was awesome. Love my DI. You know, one of my friends was a, was a, was a DI at Camp Pendleton. Big guy, like 6'4", like 220, no body fat. He was scary. You know, I would just, whatever he said, I'd do that. You know, uh, you know if you were under his care, I'm sure he made your life miserable, did he not? But before you went in, did not friends tell you what boot camp was going to be like? They're going, to, they're going to speak nicely to you. They're going to call you wonderful names. Food's going to be primo. You get to sleep in. No, what did they tell you? Opposite of all that. Why? They want to prepare you to be a soldier or a sailor, whatever, airman, whatever you are. So if you know it's going to be tough, you prepare yourself. Like one of my friends, when we got out of high school and I was going to college, he started running like 8, 10 miles a day. I'm like, what are you doing? He goes, well, I joined the Air Force. I go, well, you're not in it yet. Relax, man. Enjoy the summer. Uh, he's like, <laughs> it was California. He's like, well, I'm, I'm preparing for boot camp. So if I can run in the desert heat and I go to boot camp you know, with the Air Force, he goes, I got it made. See, isn't that like a Christian? Since I know I live in the time where the Antichrist are all over the place in my culture, well, then I know what I'm dealing with. And then it doesn't freak me out and hyperventilate me and depress me because I know what this is and I know that I'm supposed to oppose that in love and gentleness, but I'm supposed to stand for truth in this culture. Not just me, you. I mean, all of us. So I have one question for you. Are you going to stand against the Antichrist spirit? Which means, will you stand for Jesus? I must ask you if you would stand, but don't do it. Uh, just think in your mind. You know, can God count on me to stand and speak truth? So does that mean everybody's going to like you? No. Does it mean uh, uh, no one's going to ever call you names? Well, they probably are. Uh, they're going to make your life miserable at work, maybe. Uh, you might lose your job. Well, it could happen. Uh, but what am I called to do? Live a spotless life, a blameless life, a holy life, and a life of peace, and you will shine like a diamond before the culture. This is what our culture needs. Godly men, godly women, godly teenagers, godly students who are not afraid to stand up and say, I will live for Christ. That's what I'm planning on doing. Now you can stand. It's good to have you in God's house. I've been praying for you this week, and I pray for our church all the time. 
And may God use us to do great things in his name. Let's pray. God, help us to be uh, the light uh, of the little city that shines on a hill with the power of the gospel of Christ, the power of the word of God uh, that changes people from sinners into saints. May we be that kind of church, fearless and courageous, full of compassion, but not afraid to speak truth. Teach us how to do that, where to do that, when to do that. Make us wise in your ways. And may we be cutting deep into Satan's kingdom prior to your return. Might we be known for representing you. And may you bless us and protect us in the process. And we thank you for just the opportunity to share John's pen, that even in his old age, in his 90s, he was not afraid to stand in the, in the gap and say, God, here I am. I will, I will defend truth. May we be like that old man. In Jesus' name, amen.